Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your mercy and grace with us, Father. You say where two or more are gathered together, you're there in our presence, Father. We're uh, grateful to be in your presence right now, to set aside the cares and troubles of the world for just a moment, Lord, to set aside our worries and woes and frustrations and thing, everything that's going on, Lord, just to study your word and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask, Father, that all those listening to my voice, all those that belong to this Bible study in our church, even our families and our neighbors and our communities, that they would find peace in you, Father, that they would find you and find their peace in you. And help us to be those kind of people, Father, that communicate that peace one way or the other. Not being part of the problem, not being part of the angst or anxiety, but being uh, bringing the peace that surpasses all understanding that can only come from the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit through our Lord and salvation with our Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask, Father, that you just heal our hearts, hold our hearts together, hold our minds and thoughts together, and bless this Bible study, Father. Today is going to be a pretty uh, heavy one, a pretty strong one. I want to take my time with each and every segment of it. And Lord, just help us to gain understanding and wisdom and knowledge when it comes to decoding your book of Revelation. We praise you, we love you, and we thank you for all you're going to give us and show us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We'll start out at chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And this is what it says. It says, And he made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce them, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that's where we're going to stop this for this particular Bible study. Remember that last week we started talking about, we talked about the Trinity. In fact, the week before that as well. I was pleased to hear that Scott teaching on it this Sunday as well. It doesn't get taught enough, I think. And it's important that we understand the identity of God, the identity of who He is, so that we know that when we're hearing a word from God, we know it is from the true God of the scriptures. Because there's a million gods out there competing for our attention, our hearts, and our minds. And a lot of people follow just based on their emotions and feelings on how they feel about what is being said. As opposed to the Christian who is a person of the book of the Bible we take our knowledge, our information, we take our cue from the scriptures. We're the ones, we take everything we see and hear and read and we filter it through the truth of God's word. And whatever makes it past that filter is what we accept and what we hold on to. But it's important to know that when you're trying to read the Bible, that you are trying to get the Bible to instruct you, not you decide what the Bible should or could or would say. What's true about the Bible or not. Either it's all true or none of it is true. 
It can't be parts of it to be true because the Bible says that this is the word of God. How could God get anything wrong? So it's important to, again, remember the identity of God. And that's why this last verse here, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end in the Greek, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So there he's reminding us again of who he is. So this is going to be a very powerful segment of the scripture. It's almost unthinkable that this could, vent, could, could refer to anything but the second coming and the return of Jesus Christ. When it says things like, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Well, how could it be anything else but the coming, the final coming of Jesus Christ? How can this not be still yet future? We have seen and have always been taught that the scriptures speak often of the Lord's second coming with a sort of cloud coming uh, imagery, right? Uh, judgment language. It's called judgment language because anytime the Bible says that God is coming in the clouds, he is coming in judgment. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 through 11. Now after... Jesus had been on the earth after his resurrection 40 days, 40 full days, where a lot of people had seen him. Lots of people, 500 people at one time even, and some of the, uh, the scripture says. It says this, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up uh, while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood behind, beside them. They said also, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way you have watched him go into heaven. So there we read how a cloud had received him. And he says, they say he's coming back the same way. So a cloud will bring him back. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verses 16 and 17, it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain to be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, by all accounts, we have always been taught that this has to be the majestic event at the end of the world that the historic universal church has affirmed to us for all these centuries, right? But what if it isn't? What if it means something else? We have taken in the previous studies a long look at what we believe is the timing of John's writing in the book of Revelation and the phraseology he uses to present to his readers when these things will take place. We read references like things which must soon take place. Revelation 1 verse 1. And blessed is he who reads and hears the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are in it for the time is near. So first and foremost based on the continuity or the logical progression of these words it stands the reason that verses 6 and 7 that we just read 
would uh, must also follow in the same context or the same timeline and must be read and understood in light of and within the construct of what John had already written, that these things would be soon, that the time was near, it at hand, if you were. We can't go from accepting and agreeing in the first few verses that John means very soon in their lifetimes back in the first century to propelling the next few scriptures right afterwards into an abstract, intangible future with you know thousands of years away. It doesn't make logical sense. To go from one minute, he's saying, it's happening to you soon, near now, to saying, well, but this is the next verses are happening way, way, way down the line. Now, I ask you to consider for a moment that these verses refer to a judgment prophesied against first century Jerusalem, whose destruction occurs in AD 70. John's purpose looks to the approaching desolation of the temple, which we we're going we're gonna to study in detail. What is the, de the abomination of desolation? Jesus explains it to us so clearly, so perfectly, it's hard to mistake. And the destruction of Jerusalem under the Roman generals Vespasian and Titus. Now, I'm well aware that this view and position is very strange to most Christians today. This is very hard for some people to listen to. Many, many, many people have quit this Bible study. Many of people that I know teach this version of Revelation have been excommunicated from the churches, called heretics, considered you know, apostates, because they don't fully accept the teachings about the future, about the end times that we've been, that's basically been shoved down all our throats for a couple of centuries now, relatively new in the body of Christ, relatively new in the church. So when people start to see that some of the stuff contradicts what they've been taught this whole time, they have a hard reaction to that. For those of you that are still at this Bible study, I commend you for that. You have an open mind, you're willing to listen, to consider the options, and then you make up your own mind. I'm not here to completely transform you to my way of thinking, but... I'm, I am going to make the strongest case possible for what I believe is the right way to read and to interpret the book of Revelation. That I think makes more sense than anything else and fits the scriptures way better. But not just Revelation. I mean all the way back through to the Gospels and the things Jesus said. We, there's a lot of mystery to what we, Jesus said before, but not so much after you understand how it all played out in the book of Revelation. Revelation actually begins to unlock a lot of the things in the Gospels that we found hard to understand before. Now, after I've had a good conversation with somebody about this, and I've explained my position, my side of it, I hear people say, wow, this makes all the sense in the world, but how come we haven't heard this? And I've heard very various variations of the same segment. But... I can literally see the puzzle pieces start to fall into place with the people as I explain the timeline and how things are working out and the lights start to turn on in their brain and the scriptures actually just begin to come alive for them. So let's examine some strong reasons 
why we can legitimately consider why this must be true. What is true? That these events explained by John in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, are actually things that already happened in our past. They were still future for him when John wrote them, about three years to come. But he was warning them what was about to happen, and he was explaining to them in apocalyptic language how the judgment would come upon Jerusalem and the temple, which was already desolated. Remember, I said the temple was already gutted. There was nothing in it anymore except false idols, Babylonian artifacts. There was demonic worship within the temple at the time. The priests, the chief priests, and the Pharisees and Sadducees were involved in demonic worship, in prostitution, in corruption, all those things happening in the temple of God. So that by the time Vespasian and Titus come to destroy it, Jesus already said, that house has been left to you desolate. That house is not God's house anymore. It's not my house anymore. It no longer is going to facilitate the faith or the sacrifice for you because I've already completed that. I'll open it up for quick questions. Yes. Um, yeah. um, Martin wants me to ask you what year was the temple desolated? That uh, The temple was destroyed in AD 70. Okay. AD 70. That was when the Titus and Vespasian came with their armies. They had sieged Jerusalem for for uh, almost seven years now. They had uh, There had been the wars and rumors of wars. There had been pestilence. The four horsemen of the apocalypse were running rampant through the land, through uh, through Jerusalem and all the uh, surrounding places. So I the, it was all happening during that time. And then when the temple, the desolation of the temple happened, when Titus and his men destroyed it, and brought it to the ground. Remember that while they were destroying it, the gold inside, the inlaid gold and everything else that was left over was melting into the rocks and they literally had to dig up the rocks where not one stone was left upon another, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that they would, uh, that not st one stone would be lifted upon, left upon another because they were digging in for the gold in all the nooks and crannies. And then when they set up their idols and sacrifice to Zeus in that area where the temple was destroyed, that is the abomination of desolation. And again, we're going to get into it really good later on. Yes. So do we know for sure, like, when, uh, around what time God at that temple, when he was not physically in that form or spiritually in that temple? Uh, do we know when the when uh, the spirit left the temple? Yes. Uh, actually, we do, and I'm and and that's part of another lesson. So okay. let me that okay. way we can when we when we discuss it we can I can be prepared to really give you the details about that because there did come a time when it was recorded in history when the Holy Spirit actually said we're leaving we're leaving this house and it was prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel said the day will come when your spirit, the spirit will leave the house and he will no longer inhabit it and it will become a haunt for jackals, basically demons. Okay, okay. thank but, you. But give me a chance to get to that one and really do, it, do that some real justice because there's some nice tidbits in there about that one as well. So to put all this in the proper perspective, let's look at verse 9 of Revelation 1. Verse 9 of Revelation 1. Listen to this. It says, I, John, 
your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So now the apostle John is saying right here to all who are reading this book that he is a fellow partaker in the tribulation. Okay, very few places where the tribulation is mentioned, much less a seven-year tribulation. But here, he's saying that he's in the middle of it with them already. Okay, the theme in verse 7, that is Jesus coming in the clouds, has to have relevance. Has to mean something to the people who are reading it right then and there. Okay, it has to have relevance to them. Uh, because John is writing to a particular people at a particular place in a particular time, included himself. Look what it says. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom of perseverance. So he is saying this tribulation is happening now. I'm in the middle of it with you. And this is what you can expect that's going to happen. What possible relevance or comfort would these words have for the people going through the worst tribulation of their lives to warn them of the catastrophic events that were coming and about to, to hit Jerusalem and the temple, that would be the most horrendous thing that would ever happen to them. Even with calling counting the Holocaust, this event would be though is is and will be and always will be, and there never will be a worse one again. The worst event that ever happened to the Jewish people. Why? Because it was the destruction, the final destruction of their temple and their city. The city came back, yes. But the temple, why haven't they been able to figure out to build that temple or able to for 2,000 years now? And so their faith, everything they ever knew was turned upside down. So why would they take comfort in words that were supposed to be catastrophic events that weren't going to happen till 2,000 years, maybe 3,000 years in the future? It makes no sense. John is ministering to a particular persecuted minority. What is that minority? The, the brand new fledgling baby church of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Jews who came to believe in him, the Gentiles who came to believe in him, now they're the ones facing the worst persecution in history. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. Here, the faith, uh, the following of Jesus in its, is in its infinite stages, I'm sorry, infant stages, in the first century. And, and that's a major recurring theme throughout Revelation. Surely he couldn't be telling these persecuted saints that the time is near and that they must heed uh, keep going, you know, keep writing to them and say, God's concerned with your terrible persecution, but he will deliver you. He will spare you. He will rapture you so you don't have to face these horrific events and avenge you. Not this time and maybe not you, but, you know, saints thousands of years in the future. So please take courage and persevere. That makes no sense whatsoever. No sense. Now, I want you to know that while America, in its historical infancy in this world, has seen and experienced some horrific and catastrophic events and tragedies on our own soil. 9-11, 
Pearl Harbor, the Civil War, and many other things. But it has not had to suffer even remotely close the horrors of the Black Plague, the Holocaust, the evil machinations of dictators like Stalin and Lenin and Hitler and other world-class megamaniacs who killed people by the tens of millions. As much as we like to call our opposing party candidates these things, Nazis, Hitlers, whatever it is, on both sides, okay, which I do find obnoxious because, and it's insulting, because it's a watering down of what those regimes truly were, the evil, the disgusting evil they were. It waters it down when you just uh, stand from one side of a political party to the other yelling at each other, you're a Nazi, you're Hitler, that, that waters it down. When people do that, in my opinion, they ran out of arguments for their case. And number two, they have no concept of history. If you can call anybody today a Hitler, okay, and again, not particular parties, but if you can do that, you have no concept of what, how horrific Hitler truly was. Okay, you just don't. To say that America is suffering even remotely close in its entire history, 240 years compared to over 2,000 years for all the other civilizations, to say that it's worse now than it's ever been in the history of the planet, and that's going to precipitate the rapture, which is going to bring down Jesus to rapture his saints, and then the seven-year tribulation, uh, you got to be kidding me. I'm sure the rest of the world is looking at us going, my God, you're just a toddler stubbing your toe right now. Like Italy, France, Germany, Rome, all those places that have been destroyed to the ground had to be rebuilt from nothing, from ashes. We have not yet even come close to experiencing something that horrific. We just haven't. So I find it kind of, I don't know, incredulous, disingenuous. When people say, rapture is about to happen. Look, it can't get any worse. Well, we, as coddled, babied, spoiled Americans, maybe for us, it's a little inconvenient. But to say that this is the worst suffering in humanity since the beginning of the world, America has, doesn't even, has no clue what it's like to truly suffer like almost every other civilization, almost every other country on the planet. And again, we've only been around 240 years. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen in the future, perhaps. But let's please dial back the rhetoric. Let's dial back the fear mongering. And let's not say it's worse now than it's ever been because America has no clue of that whatsoever. Okay. Let's look at some usages of the phrase coming in the clouds through the entirety of scriptures. If we read Jesus is coming in the clouds then we should go to other places in the Bible to be able to read that same phrase, just like the first Jews would read this, the first Christians would read this, because they were mostly Jews, and they would understand what that phraseology meant in the Old Testament. And now John is used taking that phrase, bringing it to the New Testament and saying, this is what's going to happen. Now they would be able to get it. It's not such a mystery to them. So what does it mean to them when they say coming in the clouds? Well, at the first glance, 
When you first read it, it does sound like the second coming of our Lord. Not to mention that he will come in the clouds at the end of history. This time in judgment of all the nations of the world. And we find this type of judgment language is used symbolically in other divine historical judgments in the Bible. Remember when I said that the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem in judgment to destroy the temple using his 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 tools, Titus and Vespasian, okay, was the final closing of the old covenant. The old covenant promised rewards for those who followed, those who obeyed, those who received the Messiah, the, the fulfillment of the promise, and those who would not, who would receive the curses, sevenfold curses over and over and over again. And remember when I told you that in Revelation, curse, the curses are all sevenfold. John keeps to that theme so that we have a good reference back to Deuteronomy, back to Ezekiel, and we can put it together. But it takes a little putting together. The biggest mistake people make is trying to open the book of Revelation and then trying to apply 20th century logic, 20th century wisdom to it. And guess what? How's that worked out for us? Prophecy after prophecy, century after century, decade after decade, 100% wrong. God is never wrong. The scripture is never wrong. The standard is, if you prophesy, if you say God spoke to me and he said this was going to happen and it does not come to pass, the Bible says you are a false prophet. It is that cut and dry. I'm not saying that we should relegate all teachers to false prophets. I'm just saying those who would set a time or a date, even though they say soon, like it's, it's right here, it's right next to us, you don't know that. You presume to know something that the apostles don't even know. Or, or, or Jesus will not even tell them, but he told you somehow. I, I find that a little bit hard to believe. But the expression, coming of the Lord, is used in many contexts that do not refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's start looking at a few. Let's go to Revelation 2.5. Revelation 2.5. In Revelation 2.5, Jesus says, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent of the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. So now he's saying he's going to show up. He's going to show up here to remove their lampstand. Now you might make the argument, well that means at the end of time. I, I don't know. But here he says, I'm going to show up just to remove your lampstand. That's a coming. In Deuteronomy 33.2, Deuteronomy, we're going to go all the way back to Deuteronomy 33.2. Here, listen to this, he said, Deuteronomy 33.2, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. So now the Lord is saying he's coming to them. Or that he came to them. Did God physically show up to them? Probably not. But he says that was a coming. A what? A coming in judgment. A coming in to judge the people. Okay. In Isaiah 19.1. Isaiah 19.1. And they're going to get clearer and clearer as we go. Listen to this. 
The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So now we have a reference. What does coming in the clouds mean? Here, it means that the Lord is coming in judgment to Egypt and the prophet Isaiah is describing it as God coming in the clouds. So this, along with other references, begin to tell us that when the Jewish person was reading this, and he would read about Jesus, about the Lord coming on a swift cloud or coming in the clouds, he understood immediately that's God coming in judgment. And he's done it many times in the Old Testament. He came in clouds. He came in judgment against Egypt, against Babylon, against Sodom and Gomorrah, against all these places. He came in judgment. Coming in the clouds means coming in judgment. Okay. Zechariah 1.16. That's going to be close to the end of your Old Testament. Now look what it says here. It says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Now, did the Lord personally come back in person there? No, he came back in repentance. They repented. He came back with compassion. He came back as the driving force to build all those things, right? And uh, this is also a prophecy not of the past, but a prophecy of the future as well, because God did do that. We will read about measuring lines. We will read about John measuring the, the walls of uh, heaven, right? Or the walls of Jerusalem, I'm sorry. And so that is going to be connected there. Let's go to Malachi 3. Malachi 3, it's the last book. should be your last book of your Old Testament. Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2. Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2 say, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's, like a fuller's soap. Now look what it says there. It's very important. Okay, very important. He says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Now, interestingly enough, this has, has its counterpart in the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation 6, and I didn't write it there on your outline, I should have. But in Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17, it says, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus predicted that word for word. Then it says, for the great day of the wrath has come, who is able to stand? So you see direct connection with the sentiment here. Who is able to stand against the coming or the judgment of God? Now, Matthew 10, 23. And as soon as I do this one, I'll open it up for questions. Now here it says, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, a couple of specific points there. It says, truly I say to you, you will not finish going through what the cities of what? The world? The earth? No. The cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So you see, that was an indicator right there. That was an indicator. And I don't know if you've ever paid that close attention to that one before. But it says, 
the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, this leaves po the possibility opening that another meaning can be applied to Revelation 1-7. That is, when we read, Behold, he is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Tribes. Right? What? Where else do we have tribes except the tribes of Israel? So it is to be. Amen. Now that leaves it open to the possibility that that doesn't necessarily have to mean the final return of Christ. A rapture, a seven-year tribulation, the abomination of desolation, the all those things, the seven-year, all those things, the mark of the beast, all those things. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Now we see that if we compare scripture with scripture, that to the Jewish person, Christian reading this, they would see it a different way. Okay, so the specific language of the Lord coming with the clouds is used in the Old Testament with reference to real-time historical judgments that are not associated with the end of the world, although to them it would have sounded like it. To the people listening to Jeremiah, listening to Ezekiel, listening to all these other prophets, it would have sounded to them like the end of the world, just like it sounds to you. Remember when we read Jeremiah 4 verses 22 to 24, and I got put it right there. Remember, here is Jeremiah speaking to Old Testament Jewish believers, okay? And he says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, and to the heavens they had no light. I looked to the mountains, and both they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. So you see the kind of apocalyptic language that Jeremiah used sounded like the whole earth was going to be decimated and turned into dust. And to them, at that time, it was. Why? Because it was the first time they would suffer the destruction of the temple. Yes, to them, the heavens would be, the earth would become formless and void. The sun would stop giving its light. In other words, that temple will no longer be the nexus between heaven and earth. It wouldn't be the place where God dwells for them. So they would literally be without, and look how desperate they were to go back afterwards to try to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And how glorious it was for them when they did, even though it was no longer the same. Because a few centuries later, Messiah would come once and for all. But here, to them, it sounds like the end of the earth. In Isaiah 19, go with me to Isaiah 19, we find a warning to Old Testament Egypt, that in prophecy, God threatens judgment upon this ancient nation, a judgment which had transpired when the Assyrian king, Esaradan, conquered Egypt in 671 BC. Notice the language that he uses for that in Isaiah 4, uh, Isaiah 19 verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, which he does to Jerusalem, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem in their judgment. They will fight each other, his brother against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead. 
and to mediums and spiritists, which also happened in Jerusalem when God came in judgment to them. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. So here, the Lord is saying, I'm going to send my servant, Esahardon, to conquer Egypt in 671 BC, and it's going to look like you, like to them, like it's the end of the world, coming in the clouds in judgment. This concludes part one of lesson nine. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. Please join us for lesson two. May God bless you, saints.